turn to Luke 21. We're going to start in verse 34, and though I'm only going to read to you three verses, um, and so you'll think, man, we're going to be out here quick today, I have news for you. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Let me pray. Father, we ask. We ask that as we look at your word this morning, as we consider what you've said in it, what you've superintended by your Spirit through the hand of Luke, one of the disciples, recording for us the teaching of Jesus, pray that you would give us understanding of your Word. Pray that we would heed these very clear commands that you have given to us to watch ourselves. We pray that we would heed these commands to stay awake. That we would understand the gravity of what it is that your son is saying to his disciples. And by your spirit, what is being superintended through the hand of Luke for even us. We pray that we would keep these commands as the means that you are using to the ends. To save us. We recognize, Father, that we cannot save ourselves. We know that we are justified through faith alone. Father, we also recognize, however, that in keeping us in the faith, you have given commands that we keep as the means to that end that we would be finally saved pray that as we look through your word this morning, we would understand that, knowing that ultimately it is your son who keeps us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want you to notice right off in verse 34, the command Jesus gives right at the beginning of this passage. Look look right at that, right at the beginning, but watch yourselves. But watch yourselves. Notice who you're supposed to watch here. Yourself. Let's be clear. I just want to slow down and take it in. Watch yourself. Now look at verse 36. But stay awake at all times. These are essentially parallel commands. We're being commanded to watch ourselves to stay awake. Why? Because the heart is wicked and deceitful. Who could know it? The last person we should trust is ourselves. We should watch ourselves and stay awake. Jesus, in fact, uses a parallel construction of the Greek with his first word, if you look there, that word, watch yourselves, there's a parallel construction of this Greek in Matthew 7, 15, and another command he gives. So keep your hand there in Luke 21 and look to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15. He actually gives it in a couple of other instances in the exact same construction. I just want to look at Matthew seven fifteen though, for our purposes this morning. Notice this, beware... In other words, watch out. It's the same command. Beware or watch out for or beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. In other words, in Matthew 7, 15, Jesus gives his command, watch yourself. I mean, excuse me, watch out for these false prophets. Watch out for them. And then in Luke 21, he says, watch yourself. 
You guys follow? It's the same kind of thing. You need to watch out for yourself with regard to wolves because you are likely to be easily deceived. You're weak enough to be caught up in their deception. So you better watch out for the wolves. And then here in Luke 21, verse 34, he says to watch yourselves. Just as he commands us to watch out for false teachers, here we're told to watch ourselves. We need to watch out for the wolves who consume the flock, and we need to watch out not only for the wolves out there who might consume the flock, but we need to watch ourselves. Look at what he says in the rest of verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. And then he's going to go on. Do you hear that? The sin problem that you need to watch out for isn't just attacking you from outside. It isn't just the wolves out there that you need to watch out for. It's the wolf in here. It's your own sinful heart you need to watch out for. It's easy for us to point at the devil and say, look at what the devil's doing. We need to watch out for the devil. It's easy for us to point to wolves and say, look at what those wolves are doing. We need to watch out for those wolves. It's easy for us to look at the world and point at them and say, look at what the world is doing. We need to watch out for the world. But this command is clearly, you better watch out for your own heart. Your own heart can deceive you. Your own heart can destroy you. You don't go outside and catch the sin disease. It's in you. I have a news flash for you. As beautiful and sweet as your babies are when they're born, they don't catch sin from their friends or from their school or from watching TV. Sin is right inside them. You know that because you don't have to teach them how to lie, and you don't have to teach them how to be selfish, and you don't have to teach them how to fight with their brother. You have to teach them how to behave. Sin's right in there. And it's in all of us. Even as believers, even as those who've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who've had our heart of stone taken away and been given a heart of flesh, Sin still remains in this world, and it still remains in the flesh, and it continues to war against us. So we need to watch ourselves. He says, watch out. So what I want to do this morning is look at what Jesus is commanding here. And then I want to look at how, in fact, we obey this command. In other words, I want to look at what we first avoid doing. Don't do these things. Avoid this. And then what we are supposed to start doing instead. You guys ready for that? What we're to avoid doing and then what we're to start doing. So as we look at this phrase, watch yourselves, watch yourselves from what? Look with me again at verse 34 and 35 and let's ask ourselves really to what, why we're supposed to watch ourselves and then from what? Verse 34 and 35. But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Now some scholars believe that this passage has to do with Jesus addressing his disciples in this context with regard to watching themselves for all these things he's warning them about that are, going to come on the, that are going to come on the earth in their time and with regard to the local judgment that's coming to Jerusalem. Some other scholars think that this is talking to the disciples in a sense this is telescoped with a future coming worldwide judgment of God and that, that, then, that command then gets passed down to us. Listen, I worked on that passage or some of that understanding last week. So if you want to understand more about that, go listen to last week's sermon. What I want to do this morning is deal with what all the scholars agree with. And that's whether or not Jesus is specifically addressing those disciples in that time, or he's addressing us by speaking prophetically of the future. Regardless of that, the fact is that even if he's talking to the disciples in that time, that is still typological... That is still a type of what's to come for the rest of us. And so we still receive the same command. 
Regardless of which way you look at this passage, the command comes over to all of us. What matters for the purpose of what the Spirit is saying to us, as he was saying to the disciples, is that God's judgment is coming and you need to be ready. Listen, when will Jesus return? On that great eschatological end times day of the Lord. When is that? I don't know. I have no idea. I don't have the faintest clue. I'm told by the Apostle Paul that it's soon. He said that 2,000 years ago, so I can safely assume it's a lot sooner than he was saying. Here's what I do know. Whether the end of all things happens in our lifetimes or not, we will personally face our own last day. Do you hear that? So while we're getting all caught up with eschatology, the study of the end things, and how do all these things unravel at the end, I want you to understand that your first concern needs to be your own personal eschatology. What will happen to me on that last day? Because I will face that last day. Whether I face that last day by hearing the trumpet sound and seeing the heavens unfold and Jesus come with his mighty army, which is what I'm hoping for, Or whether I face that last day by closing my eyes in death. I don't know which way I'm going to face that last day. I pray it's the first way and not the second. But the fact is, I better be ready. We will all die. And Hebrews is clear. It's been appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Are you ready to face him? See, on your own, you're a sinner. Hear that? A vile, wretched, sinful enemy of God. Not a sweet, nice, good, innocent person for whom you des- whom, for whom deserve the death of Jesus. You're a sinner, an enemy of the Lord. You've always, listen, even as an unbeliever, you had a personal relationship with God. Your problem has never been a lack of a personal relationship with God. You've always had one. The problem is the nature of the personal relationship you had with him. You had a kind of personal relationship with him in which he was your enemy bringing justice against you. What you need is a reconciled personal relationship with God, which only comes through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came the first time to save you. He came the first time to pay the penalty for your sin, for the sin of everyone who would ever believe on the cross. If you trust in him, you'll be saved. Forgiven for your sins, declared righteous, redeemed, rescued, readied for that day when you'll face him. If you do not trust in him, then the next time he comes, you need to understand he's not coming as your savior. He's coming as your judge. Sure, he is a savior for, who's coming for everyone who will ever believe, but he's also coming as a judge for all who do not. And as believers, whether Christ returns in your lifetime or not, the fact is you will face troubles in this world, and you will face death, or at least that last judgment. Are you prepared for that? Are you prepared for the, stru- the troubles that will inevitably strike, your, in your, strike in your life? Or are you drunk with this world? Caught up in the cares of this life? Where, are, where is your mind and your heart on a daily basis? 
Are you constantly preparing for the day that you see Christ and live in his glory forever? Or is your heart and your mind constantly set here, would I even say, hell-bent on this earth? And the judgment that comes for all those whose hearts are hell-bent here. See, are you prepared to face him when he returns? Are you prepared to face even your own death? Jesus wants his disciples to be ready to stand before him, and Jesus wants us to be ready to stand before him. The Apostle Paul also wanted Christians to be ready to return, to be ready for the return of Christ. That's why you read a very similar kind of passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 8, as Paul walks through and tells them, don't be drunk. You're children of the light. Children of the day, not children of the night, not children of darkness, don't walk around in, drunken, in a drunken stupor like the world does. Don't fall asleep that that day will come and catch you, as Jesus is saying here, like a thief in the night, like a trap. In fact, as believers, that would never characterize you. As believers, you are those who stay awake. So that day doesn't surprise you like a thief in the night. Because you know it's coming. And you're readying yourself all the time for his coming. The fact is that we're called to readiness, to wakefulness, to watchfulness. We're commanded to it. So let's first talk about what keeps us from watchfulness. Are you ready? What keeps us from watchfulness? What keeps us from readiness? What puts us to sleep? Jesus says that what keeps us from watchfulness are those things which, look at verse 34, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. In a a similar sort of passage in James 5, he uses a similar kind of topic when he says to the rich that they ought to weep and howl for the day that's coming upon them because in their wealth their hearts are being fattened for the day of slaughter. In other words, their hearts are being weighed down. So what's weighing down our hearts in the world that we need to watch out for? What do we need to do to actively watch out that our hearts would not be weighed down, that our hearts would not be fattened for the day of slaughter? And please note, this is an active watching out for something. This is a being on your guard for something. You hear that? But watch yourselves. Verse 36, but stay awake at all times. This isn't passivity. This is the kind of active watching out for your heart in the way you hope your government is watching out for foreign enemies or terrorist threats. You don't want your government falling asleep while terrorists bomb the buildings, do you? What Jesus is saying is, well, you better not fall asleep while Satan terrorizes your heart, while the world terrorizes your heart. Stay awake. Watch out. Keep on your guard. It's the same kind of watch for your heart that you would keep if you were told someone was coming to rob your house that night. You would watch out, wouldn't you? You wouldn't go to sleep. You'd probably stand there with your gun in your hand. It's okay if you own a gun. It's allowed in this country, just so you know. I'm not saying you should. You'd probably stay awake, though, wouldn't you? Yet Jesus tells us to watch out, and we take the weapon that he gives us, and we do that, and we go to sleep. He says, watch out. We're in a spiritual battle against principalities and powers and Satan is prowling around looking for someone to devour and we have to believe that and be on the watch or look out. So what keeps us from being watchful? What weighs our hearts down so that we are so easily taken advantage of? There are really two categories mentioned here. If you look at the first one, so that lest your hearts be weighed down with, said, with dissipation and drunkenness. That really, dissipation and drunkenness are the same term to some degree. I mean, they're different terms, but they they refer to the same thing. Dissipation is this kind of thing that happens to you when you're, we we usually call a a hangover. You're hungover. 
alcohol has affected you in such a way that you are off your game. It's the same thing that happens with drunkenness. And lest you wonder what does that mean in the Greek, he means don't let your heart be weighed down with drunkenness. That's it. He's talking about alcohol here, literally addressing alcohol. Don't let your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. That is his first reference. It's two ways of saying the same thing. We should not get drunk. We should not abuse alcohol. And what drives excessive alcohol consumption? What drives it? The desire to drown your senses from the realities that you face in the world. That's what drives it. As a side note, the same is true with marijuana use, isn't it? Even the so-called medical version of marijuana use. Listen, if you can get a prescription drug from a vendor on Venice Beach, it's probably not legit. (laughs) The fact is that we often don't stay awake. We don't want to stay awake. We often want to go to sleep. We don't want to be watchful, so we drown out our senses. Alcohol is particularly dangerous for this reason because it's so effective at lying to us and destroying us, isn't it? So incredibly effective at lulling us to sleep. In fact, in the Proverbs, this is directly addressed. If you keep your hand in Luke 21 and look with me at Proverbs 23, Proverbs chapter 23, and we're going To begin in verse 29, this directly addressing alcohol, and I I want to be clear about this, I suspect and even fear that many of you in here have a problem with alcohol. I suspect that because every time I open up my Facebook stream, I see pictures of you with alcohol. I suspect that because every time I hear about events you're going to, alcohol is present. I don't know that in all of your cases, but I'm going to tell you, if alcohol is a regular part of your social events, if alcohol is some major identity thing for you and your friends, you have a problem. You are violating what Jesus is commanding here. You are numbing your senses If your friends are ever saying to you, you know what, I think you have a problem. You know what, I think you drank too much. You have a problem. You may not yet be an alcoholic, but you're clearly violating what Jesus says. Now, I know we all love to rejoice in our freedom and talk about the fact that, well, the Bible never says you can't drink alcohol. But while that's true, in fact, the Bible even says in some cases that wine gladdens the heart, that alcohol is, in fact, a gift from God, and that's true. But the Bible also warns you constantly about the abuse of this substance. Just like it warns you about the abuse of sex. Sex is a wonderful gift from God in its proper place. But if you define your marriage just by sex, like many of you define all your other social relationships by alcohol, you've got a problem in your marriage. Look at what it says here in verse 29 of Proverbs 23. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes. I don't know who has all that stuff because I don't want to have it. So what are they? Who has it? Look at what he goes on to say. Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it's bite. It bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. 
if you feel any sense of nagging on your heart, of the Holy Spirit saying to you, maybe this applies to you, it probably applies to you. Unless you think that there aren't other ways to drown out the noise of this fallen world in dissipation and drunkenness so that you're able to go to sleep, let me remind you that you can do the same thing with other sinful addictions like pornography, food, sex, or even addictions to things like video games, TV, movies, music, and social media. In fact, I think our culture has become drunk on entertainment. So as not to have to face the realities of this world. We can't stand the quiet. We shudder at the thought of boredom, for we fear we may have to contemplate our own deaths. So we are drunk with entertaining ourselves. And sadly, many churches just imbibe the spirit of the age in an effort to be culturally relevant so people will just keep coming. So they just say, what the world wants is entertainment, so let's entertain them. And the problem is, what the world wants is sin. What the world wants is the avoidance of seeing what's true in the fallenness around us. I don't know what that was. That's what the world wants. We're not supposed to participate in that. We need to repent of this. We need to turn from our drunken stupor and wake up and keep watch. Further, we can also cease keeping watch, not just because of drunkenness, but due to the distractions distractions of this world. So you have dissipation and drunkenness, and you have distractions, or what Jesus calls in verse 34, if you look there again, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So what are the cares of this life? Look at um, Luke chapter Eight. Keep your hand there in Luke 21 and look at Luke chapter 8 because Jesus uses this phrase, cares of this life, in Luke 8 as well. He has been teaching parables to disciples, particularly the parable of the sower. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 9, he, his disciples ask him what the parable meant of the sower, and so he explains it. He said, verse 10, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. Sometimes you feel like you're watching the birds come into the path and steal the seed while you're standing here preaching. He goes on to say, verse 13, and the ones on the rock are those who, now notice, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. In other words, these are false professors at the end of the day. They receive the word with joy, but they have no root. They're not the real deal. Be warned lest this be you. Look what it goes on to say. They have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. These also don't bear any fruit and thus are not real disciples. And he goes on and says, but as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. There's really, at the end of the day, two kinds of soils, three versions of the one kind of unbelieving hardened soil and one version of the good kind of soil, the one that bears fruit. But the fact is, is these people are caught up with, in this third category, they are caught up with what? The riches and cares 
and pleasures of this life. Riches and pleasures and cares. This probably includes everything from the pursuit of wealth and health and comfort to the pursuit of being thought well of by others. But our culture is in love with the pursuit of these things. We even have false teachers who commend the pursuit of these things to you as if this is what Jesus wants for you to be caught up in the cares of this life. The pursuit of wealth. Do you know that they had false teachers who taught the same thing in the first century? Do you know that? So you think it's just our century? No. This happened in the first century as well. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is not just our culture, our country, or our century. This is in Rome in the first century. More specifically here, not only the Roman Empire, but in this case in 1 Timothy, he's dealing with the city of Ephesus. First century Ephesus had false teachers telling people to pursue wealth who were pursuing wealth themselves. Look at the end of verse 2 going into verse 3. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You hear what the controversy and dissension is here? That somehow if you're godly, if you're just honoring God enough with your life and believing enough, then God will bless you financially. Word of faith doctrine isn't new. Health, wealth, prosperity preachers aren't new. They just have their own television channel now. That's the only thing that's different. In fact, I think they have more than one. They're multiplying those blasphemous, God-forsaken channels. Look what he goes on to say. Verse 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now now listen to the warning because you need to watch yourself on this, church. We need to watch ourselves. But for those, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, the craving for wealth, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But you, as for you, O man of God, here he's addressing Timothy's pastor, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of that which is truly life. You hear what he's saying to him? How many of you have not watched yourself in this regard? But you desire wealth. At the root of it, this is the fundamental problem I have with things like gambling, the lottery, and arranging your life around stepping up this ladder of success. Is it's rather than arranging your life around growing in Christ. Because it's generally desired or driven by the desire for wealth, for more. It's generally driven not by a holy discontentment, but by an unholy discontentment. Holy discontentment is, I see sin in my life. I'm not growing in the way that I would like to. And so I have a holy discontentment that God would change me. I have a holy discontentment with my church. Do you know I have a holy discontentment with sovereign grace? I always will. Not because I want more bodies in the seats or money in the bags, but I have a holy discontentment because none of us us are perfected in holiness. So I always have that, but an unholy discontentment is the desire for success and wealth. 
I'm discontent until I have those things. That desire is like a trap you fall into. Repent of it. You don't pursue it and Christ. You pursue Christ and you repent of that desire. Is your life ordered around that desire? You order your kids' lives around it? You know what I really want for my children? I want them to be successful. I want them to have straight A's, go to the best colleges, and get the best jobs. I've ordered my lives, my kids' lives around what? What this world values. We need to forsake that kind of desire for our children. Our desire for our children ought to be that they love Jesus. Whether they get good educations or not, in the sense of going to the best colleges and getting the most successful jobs. Who cares? I don't care if you're the most successful person in the world if you go to hell. Jesus is clear about that, isn't he? But no matter how much we can hear Jesus say to us that wealth and pleasures and comforts dull our senses and distract us from being prepared for his return, we continue to pursue these things. Our hearts are so set on our families or our homes or our reputations or our careers or our comforts or our achievements that we hardly ever actively prepare our minds for heaven. Instead, we are lulled into drunkenness and distraction and sleep by all of this. So how do we watch? Well, we avoid those two things. We avoid drunkenness and we avoid worldly distraction. But we also must do something. We don't want to just avoid something. We're not just being commanded to stop doing something. We're also being commanded to start doing something. We're being commanded to actively watch, to stay awake. So look at verse 36 of Luke 21. Verse 36, 6. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. How do we stay awake? See, we all know how to get drunk and distracted, don't we? That one comes naturally for us. But how do we stay awake? Well, minimally, we do so by praying. What does he say? But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things and to stand in that day. What day is that? To stand before the Son of Man. That's talking about standing for judgment. We are constantly praying that the Lord will provide us enough strength to escape all these things. That's the troubles and temptations of this world. And to stand in the day. We need the Lord to give us strength as we wait for him. This is a difficult world, and we need the Lord to give us strength to not be overcome by the injustice and sin in this world so that we're not able to escape his judgment and stand before him. Look at Luke chapter 18. Just keep your hand in Luke 21. We'll see a parallel here with praying. Luke chapter 18, I won't go through this whole passage. I just want you to see the first verse. And he told them, Luke 18 verse 1, and he told them, that's the disciples, a parable to the effect that, now listen, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. See, always pray It is so much easier to become drunk with wine or to be distracted by what this world offers than it is to stay awake and be vigilantly watchful. It hurts a lot more to stay awake and be vigilantly watchful, to be honest with you. It costs a lot to stay awake and be vigilantly watchful. That's why we need to pray. The whole world sings to us It's like a giant, demonic, sinful lullaby trying to put us to sleep. That's why we need to pray. Let me say this. If you aren't constantly praying, 
If you are not constantly on your knees praying with the Lord to keep you and to return soon and to set your mind on Jesus and your reward with him, then you're either drunk or distracted by this world. And whether you need to repent of alcohol abuse or entertainment abuse or social media abuse or the pursuit of wealth and comfort and pleasure and success and a good reputation, the fact is that you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and wake up and stay awake so that you can stand in the day of judgment. But you might say, but, but I don't understand all this because, listen, if I'm a born-again Spirit and dwelt, justified through faith alone, believer, why is it necessary that I stay awake lest I fall under judgment? Why would he even warn me of that? Doesn't Jesus hold on to me? Doesn't he keep me? Yes. Yes, Jesus holds on to you and keeps you. Yes. However, he holds on to you through means. Let's hear that? Through means. Let's not become those who juxtapose the ends and the means against one another. Yes, Jesus ordained your end. Your end is that all whom he saves will be saved to the uttermost. He ordained that end, but Jesus also ordained the means to your end, and he says that the means is to stay awake. And prayer is key to those means. Further, not only do we need to pray, we need others to be praying with us and speaking the word to us. Did you hear Russell read from Hebrews 3 this morning? Is that right, Russell, didn't you? Yeah, I was standing at the door, somebody was coming in, but What an incredibly apropos passage. Listen. What he says in Hebrews 3 and and verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you. Notice who he's addressing. Brothers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now how can that be in a brother? Because there are such a thing as false professors. Now the author of Hebrews doesn't know in the church at Hebrews who all the true believers are and who all the false professors are. He can't see their hearts. What he knows is they all refer to themselves as in Christ, as brothers, and so he addresses them all knowing that some of them may not even themselves be aware of the fact that they have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And so he goes on, he says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So it's not just praying and watching out for ourselves, it's that we need one another to pray for each other and watch out for each other and tell each other the truth. Because Jesus uses a means to keep us. Look, there is no exciting new book or program that's going to keep you awake. Staying awake requires we pray. And it requires we surround ourselves with other believers who pray and who speak the truth to us. That's what the church exists for. We are the body of Christ and we need each other to stay awake. We aren't optional to each other. Do you hear that? And the center of our life together is not to be around cool programs or entertainment or whatever the next big thing is that's being brought to you by some adolescent hipster pastor. I'm serious. Somebody thought that was funny. Thank you. The one person who enjoys my sense of humor. We should go to lunch, whoever you are. Unless, no, Melanie, you're a single woman. That wouldn't be good. But we could take some other people with us. All right. Listen, all this entertainment-driven ministry is just garbage anyway. That we It's the same garbage that we use to make ourselves fall asleep in the first place. 
Further, when you're really suffering and you're really struggling to stay awake, none of that junk is any consolation, is it? When you're suffering and you walk in and they blow smoke across the stage and they shine lights across the smoke, you think to yourself, I wonder what smoke is going to be blown out of that pastor. <laughs> Gosh, man. I'm going to have to rethink my policy. The, uh, <laughs> what we need is simply a body who speaks the word to one another and who prays for one another. That's what we need. That's what we need. We need to stand watch for one another. That's what pastors and elders are called to do. They're called to keep watch. In Acts 20, 28, Paul says to them, keep watch for yourselves. You notice that first, elders? Keep watch for yourselves. And also the flock. Whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Whom he's bought with his own blood. Keep watch. Why? Because fierce wolves are going to come in. And they're not just going to come in from out there. They're going to come in from within your own selves. That means the elders. And you know what? They didn't keep watch well in Acts 20. This is, he's talking to the church at Ephesus. We know that because he has to send Timothy to Ephesus to throw out wolves among the elders and reappoint elders. We desperately desire to keep for ourselves, to keep watch for ourselves and for you as elders of Sovereign Grace. Desperately desire that. Do you know that every Sunday I stand up here and preach, you'll see me looking around the crowd. What am I doing? I'm taking a mental note of who's absent. And I start to notice and I start to count the weeks. And you say, that's a lot of people to keep note of. Yeah, it's getting more and more difficult the more people we get here. But you, you do me the great favor of almost always sitting in the same place. And it's super helpful. Why? Because I want to keep watch for the flock. The elders, we want to keep watch. That's why every, we, every month when we meet, we go over our list of members and we talk about who's keeping watch over them. Does anybody know what's going on in their lives? How are they doing? Are there any things we need to pray for? Has anybody followed up with them to check and see if things are Okay. Because we fear that if we don't keep watch for you and you don't keep watch for yourselves, we may find out in the end you're a false professor. And nothing would grieve us more than that. We desperately desire to keep watch for ourselves and for you. Now now let me tell you about one other kind of keeping watch that's an aside. But I want to say it to you Christians because while this text in Luke 21 is not talking about this, We ought to even stand watch for unbelievers. You hear me? Ezekiel chapter 33. If you want to keep your hand in Luke 21 and look there, Ezekiel chapter 33. I want you to hear this. This is a passage of God speaking to his prophet Ezekiel about keeping watch for his people, Israel. But as those who are in Christ, the final prophet the final priest and final king, we are all prophet, priest, and kings in him. And in this sense, and only this sense are we prophets, that we speak the word of God to one another and to unbelievers. But I want you to hear this watch that he's told to keep. Verse, chapter 33, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, and this is just addressing Ezekiel. This is different than the Son of Man in Luke 21, which is a reference to Daniel 7, which is a reference to his divinity. This is just him as a man or a servant. It's a way of calling him servant. Speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But but follow this. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes away any one of them, 
that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Listen, I don't have time to unwrap that whole passage. Here's the point. God has told us what's coming for unbelievers. And he's made us watchmen for them. In fact, he's clearly commanded us to go tell them. Not just the unbelievers around us, but the unbelievers in the nations. And if we fail to warn them, their blood is on our hands. That isn't something to be taken lightly. I thank God that my wife watched out for the life of a man named Marvin, one of my neighbors for several years, whom we've known for now nine years. I, I want you to understand, this is a man who, when we met him, was 82 or 83 years old. He had no interest in the Lord at all. He had lived his life. He believed he was a good man. In fact, on numerous occasions when Jared would share the gospel with Marvin and draw little pictures of Mr. Marvin in hell, (laughs) trying to warn him, being a good watchman, he was six. (laughs) Mr. Marvin, this is you in hell, right? He'd tell him, and we'd be like, oh, yeah, we have to work on his methodology. But anyway, (laughs) when he would do that, And we would talk to Marvin and tell him the gospel again and again. And Teresa would meet with him almost weekly for eight or nine years. Take him to lunch as he aged and was dying and share the gospel with him. On numerous occasions, Marvin would always tell us, I'm a good person. I might as well go to hell because all my friends are going to be there. You know what? I may not have kept God's law, but I've kept Marvin's law. And for me, that's all that matters. He even sent us a card saying, I I love you guys. You're good friends. Basically the gist of it. Don't tell me about this anymore. I'm never going to be a believer. I'm better than most of the believers I've met. And you want to know what was difficult? He was really generally kinder and more honest than most of the believers we had met too. And this continued on until about a week and a half ago, he was put into hospice care, 92 years old, dying, and um, Teresa decided on Tuesday to go try to share the gospel with him at one last time, assuming he could die that day, they thought that he might, and she re-explained it to him, and thankfully he was cognizant enough, which we kept praying he would be, to have these kinds of conversations, and she really re-explained it to him um, on, with some degree of depth, but he had already heard me preach multiple times. He had already heard us explain the gospel to him multiple times, so it wasn't new territory. And he asked her, how does he repent? I don't know what that means. How do I do that? And eventually he started to tear up and recognize that he was a sinner, and he wanted to trust in Christ for salvation. And so he did. Teresa got to go back almost every day this last week and pray with him and read scripture to him and reconfirm the fact that he wasn't just senile, he really was a believer. And every time he recognized what was going on and teared up when she would read scripture to him, got excited when she'd pull out her Bible. And she had that great joy. Mr. Marvin this morning at 6 a.m. joined the heavenly choir who praises Jesus with us even as we gather here. We are to be watchmen for people, ever enduring, pursuing them as Jesus pursued us. 
never giving up or losing hope, always prayerful. Not just for unbelievers, but for believers as well. Especially for those who you know, don't let them wander off without you going to them. Here's my main point and Jesus' main point. We're to watch ourselves. And and you might say, but I so often fail. Well, let me remind you of the good news. The Lord never fails to keep watch over your soul. Yes, you need to stay awake. Yes, you need to pray always. Yes, you need to be watchful. And the good news is Jesus is always at work, constantly keeping watch over you. Listen to what he says, Paul says of him in Romans chapter 8. I want you to hear this because you will hear that distinctly the Holy Spirit is keeping watch over your soul and Jesus himself, the Holy Spirit and your heart and Jesus in the throne room at the right hand of God. And listen to what he says in verse 23 or 24, sorry. Nope, 25. I'm wrong again, 26. Likewise, the Spirit... (laughs) That's bad. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Here the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit is interceding for you. So you might say, but I fail to keep myself. I'm weak at keeping myself. It's hard for me to pray without ceasing. I'm constantly caught up with the distractions of this world. But he says, the Spirit is even in your heart interceding for you when you don't know what to pray. Constantly keeping guard over you. Going on to say, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And what's his purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son so that we, what? What does he say? So that, in order that, he, Jesus, might be the firstborn or the preeminent one among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is a glorious chain of guarantees kept by the Spirit and by Christ. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Hear this. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. If that's true, then who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God In Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's good news. Gloriously good news for people who are weak at keeping watch over ourselves. Let me pray. Father, we ask. We ask that we would rejoice in your Son. The good news that his Spirit intercedes in our hearts. That he sits at your right hand, ever keeping watch over our souls. That because of what he has done, because of the glorious good news that he would be supreme among many brothers. Father, because of that, we know we are safely in your hands. We know that you will not let us go. We know that you will keep us and sustain us and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Father, we pray that we would rejoice in that glorious reality while simultaneously understanding that you use means 
that you command us to stay awake, to watch out for ourselves and for one another. Keep us, keep us, Father, from straying into drunkenness and distraction in this life. Help us to focus on your Son and have great joy in him and the kingdom that we will share with him forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.